My name is Kirk Dunn, and this is the Knitting Pilgrim Talks. I'm an actor, writer, and knitter, and I'm also known as the Knitting Pilgrim. I earned that title because in 2003, I was awarded an Ontario Arts Council Chalmers Grant to knit stitched glass, an installation of three large panels designed in the style of stained glass windows, which look at the commonalities and the conflicts between the three Abrahamic faiths. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. They took me 15 years to knit. And when the project was complete, my wife Claire and I wrote a play called The Knitting Pilgrim about my experience knitting stitch glass and my research into interfaith relations. One thing that wasn't covered in the play was the meaning behind the imagery in the knitted panels. So, this series explores each section in conversation because, ultimately, the project is about having conversations with empathy and curiosity about how we understand and sometimes misunderstand each other. Welcome to the Knitting Pilgrim Talks. The section we're exploring in, in this uh, episode is part of the Judaic Tapestry, and it deals with the place of women within Judaism. And we can see this uh, in the section of a female figure in a prayer shawl, wearing tefillin and um, blowing a shafar. And in the Orthodox tradition, all three of these actions are reserved for men. And so the question I was asking with these images is, uh, why can't women participate in Judaism in the same way as men? I am happy to welcome today Rabbi Jennifer Gorman. Rabbi Gorman has a diverse background, including theater, chaplaincy, and Jewish education. And uh, and when I say her background is diverse, <laughs> I mean it. As a civilian adjunct to the submarine fleet based in Pearl Harbor, uh, Hawaii, Rav Jen earned a commendation and the title Submarine Lady of the Submarine Force for her service to the community there. I mean, come on. How cool is that? Uh, Rabbi Gorman also holds a certificate from the U.S. Department of the Army in the Spiritual Impact of Trauma. And closer to home here in Canada, Rabbi Gorman is the Executive Director for Merkaz Canada and the Canadian Foundation for Mazorti Judaism. And she continues her rabbi-at-large responsibilities, teaching, writing, and speaking. So, Rabbi Gorman, great to have you here. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So, uh, Rabbi, can you take a, a moment to talk about the significance of these three items and being worn or used by the female figure in this section? So the, the prayer shawl, the tefillin, and the shafar. Absolutely. So the prayer shawl, known as a talit, is a four-cornered garment that has ritual fringes. There are a number of different ways of tying them. Different traditions have been passed down that represent the 613 mitzvot, the 613 commandments that are given to us in the Torah and the books of five books of Moses. And we wear that in order to remind us of doing these mitzvot. So you look on those fringes and it's like a literal string tied around your finger. And in fact, sometimes during tefillot, you will, during our prayers, you will wrap the fringes around your finger. So you see them like that string tied around your finger. The tefillin are boxes that contain certain passages from the Torah that are put, 
<coughs> excuse me, that are put on your forehead mm -hmm. and on your upper bicep. It's right. put on your weak arm. So I'm a righty, goes on my left arm. My husband okay. is a lefty, goes on his right arm. And that comes from a passage in Deuteronomy that says, Viahafta you will love God with all your heart and all your soul, and all of your power, all of your might. Uh, and you shall put these words on your heart. And you will um, put them when you're home, you will recite them, and when you are away from home, and you will put them on your hand, and they will be a reminder above your eyes. And you will write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And the reason I read that entire paragraph is it's very relevant to what we're talking about. So these are the ways we literally put the commandments in our lives. We take these passages and we tie them with these leather straps that haven't changed significantly since Second Temple times onto our bodies during prayer in the morning. We wrap ourselves in this prayer shawl, the third paragraph of the Shema, um, that was the first paragraph, mm -hmm. refers to the yep. seat, seat, the fringes, and they need to be put on at a certain time. And so over time, over the years of history, women became exempt from doing these things. Now, I myself do put on tallit and tefillin every morning, um, with the exception of the Sabbath. We do not wear the tefillin on the Sabbath. And the reason I wear them is precisely because of this paragraph. I was a youth leader, and I was teaching a young man in high school to put on his tefillin. He had asked me for help and I knew how to do it. So I started doing it with him and I pulled out a siddur, a prayer book, and I showed him where it says that you're supposed to put them on because I felt it should be done in context. And as I looked at these words, the words themselves are masculine because Hebrew is masculine. Mm -hmm. Hebrew is masculine or feminine. So the, the default is masculine, just like we in English right. until yep. recently defaulted to a singular masculine. masculine. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, we often use they. So the default for the Hebrew is the masculine singular. Right. And in this paragraph, it says, you, in that masculine singular, shall put them on your arm and on your hand. And then you will also speak of them when you're walking on your way, when you're home, when you're away, when you lie down, when you rise up. And you'll put them on your doors and on your gates. And I realized that this commandment of mezuzah, which are the little scrolls we put on our doors, which is incumbent on everyone, is in the same paragraph with tefillin. And it doesn't say, oh, men shall put on tefillin and everyone shall put on the mezuzah. It says, you shall do this. And I went home that day and found my grandfather's old tefillin and started wearing tefillin from that point onward and uh, talit the ct went along with that um, but over time and really some of it's some of it's later some of it's earlier over time women stopped doing these things and the big reason is because they're considered time-bound mitzvot so you, tzitzit the prayer shawl 
some people wear as an undershirt and you have fringes on them and they wear that all day, but it's worn only during the daytime. The prayer shawl itself that you wrap around yourself is worn only during morning tefillot, morning prayers. The tefillin are worn during morning prayers. And because they are time bound and women had very specific roles, gender roles in history of taking care of children Mm -hmm. and more importantly, nursing children. They weren't always able to do these things in the time frame that was required. Right. And so they were eventually considered exempt from this because we have this idea that if you are involved in a mitzvah, you are then um, exempt from doing another mitzvah that would preclude the first one. So raising children is itself a mitzvah a commandment. And so if you're do, busy doing that, and that means that you cannot physically do another one while you are doing that, mm-hmm. you become exempt from it. And so that was based on gender roles. Right. And so and so, what, what you're saying here is that it's not that um, men and women are, um, you know, one is better than the other. It's just that they're, they're different and they... They're very different. And, right. the, and the woman's role is not, is not, um, uh, but in inferior, or it's just it's just different. That's it's just it different, right? Right, and of course, in Reform Judaism and Conservative Judaism, over time that changed, and actually in Orthodoxy it's changing now too. When you certainly when you started stitched glass, mm-hmm. Orthodox women were not wearing talit and tefillin, right? At least not not many. And now it's become a very popular thing. Um, You're not required in the same way as a man who is required from birth, but it's certainly a mitzvah that you are permitted to take on. And depending on where you are in orthodoxy, on the spectrum, just on the spectrum of orthodoxy, some rabbis will say, yes, you can take on this mitzvah. And some will say, no, you cannot take on this mitzvah. Okay, right. Yeah, and so I I, I suppose the thing that's, you know... um, that happens over time in these things where, and I think this happens to all of us in everything and not just in Judaism, but certainly it happens in Christianity and I think in religions and just in organizations and bureaucracies is when people start doing things, um, people start being assigned individual roles, right? Then some people start to add a hierarchy to those roles. Well, I'm doing this. So, you know, I'm better than you are, or, you know, this is more important rather than what you're doing. And, and then if you actually want to change this, you know, if people want to change those mm-hmm. rules, then there's quite a bit of pushback around that. Is that the, is that the same kind of thing that's happened within Judaism? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's happened. And you know, when you have 2000 years of history mm-hmm. defining those roles, right. um, and of course we're influenced by the cultures, wherever Jews have lived, you're going to see that influence then affecting that hierarchy in Judaism. There are passages in the Talmud that date back to the 6th century that say um, women are actually closer to God, and it's trying to understand why women don't need these mitzvot. Right. And they're saying, well, women are closer to God because they they have the power to give birth. Yeah. So they experience the divine in a different way Um, so it wasn't a hierarchical piece but rather a a physical being and a gender role as gender roles have changed in our societies so too have 
which mitzvot men and women feel they are necessarily obligated to do. Right, obligated. And and there's now this this possibility that people are, uh, it's occurring to them that I actually can do this if I if I want to. I'm not I'm not actually prohibited. I'm just I'm um, I think you know certainly the, the the misunderstanding that you know I I had uh, and grew up with or just occurred to me from the outside looking into Judaism was that these things were were prohibited like you know the, the men Absolutely. did these things the women did these things and then and anybody and if the women you know push back against that then the men got upset um, but you know what I'm hearing <laughs> that's from, certainly true yeah. <laughs> in some cases. <laughs> And that's that's you know it's not just it's not just in Judaism. I mean, there's there is a substantial patriarchy that runs across all three of the uh, the Abrahamic faiths for sure. Absolutely. And I have uh, witnessed it in the Christian tradition, uh, and we can see it all you know all over the place. Um, yeah, but it's really interesting to to go back to those things, and even too. And I, I remember also um, hearing that there's that there are prayers that men say that if, that thank God for making them a man and not a woman. And that's, again, I understand that the the intention of that, from what you're saying, it, it, it's about being, um, uh, not being obligated in the same way that a that a woman is. Is, is that right, or what was the... right? It's the idea of having the ability to fulfill extra mitzvot, right, for God. Right. There is actually a siddur. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head the exact dates, but it comes from the medieval period mm -hmm. from Italy that was commissioned by a groom to his future bride to be given as a wedding gift that says in it, thank you, God, for making me a woman and not a man. <laughs> and so he, he commissioned this with a famous scribe. So it wasn't um, someone who didn't know better. That scribe would have done hundreds if not thousands of cedarim of prayer books mm -hmm. and he put in this change for this woman because it was a cedar that was specifically for a woman um, and i think that's also part of it i i will tell you that my husband while i was pregnant said he definitely understood why someone might say that prayer he doesn't he right. says thank you god for making me according to your will right but he understood it. It wasn't something that he wanted to go through. Whereas for me, it, pregnancy was simply part of what I was doing as a woman. It didn't mm -hmm. bother, bother me in any way. Right. Okay. Okay. I'm going to come clean here and say that during the original interview with Rabbi Jen, I forgot to double back and ask her about the Shafar. So we needed to do a pickup on a different day. And that accounts for Rabbi Jen's sudden costume change here. So um, all that said, Rabbi Jen, welcome back. And uh, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about the Shafar and its ritual function and how women were involved in that. Absolutely. So a Shofar is a hollowed out horn. It can be made of any horn from a kosher animal, which means any true horn. So any animal that has a horn, an antelope, uh, a cow, a ram, these things all have true horns that can be hollowed out, so not antlers, um, and they're all kosher, um, and not something like the tusk of a narwhal or um, the tusks of an elephant. So a, a, what's considered a true horn can be made in shofar, into a shofar. Traditionally, 
we don't use cows because they kind of harken back to that whole incident with the golden calf that oh. happened at Mount Sinai. And so they aren't used, but a shofar made from a cow's horn would still be kosher. It's an announcing tool. So in biblical times, it was used to uh, announce anytime you wanted the community to gather. It was used to announce a new month. It was used to announce the coronation of a monarch. Um, and it was used to announce the new year. Now, we use it primarily just for the new year. Um, although we, I do have some friends who used it to announce the entrance of the groom and then the entrance of the bride at their wedding. And it was truly stupendous to hear this great blast and then have them walk in. So the, there are modern ways that people have reinterpreted the use of shofar. Nowadays, we use it from the month before Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah being the beginning of the new year in Judaism. It starts with the beginning of Elul, which is the month before. It's blown every morning to kind of give us a hey, this is coming, it's time to prepare for the new year. Um, if you did anything wrong, say you're sorry. We believe that in order to repent, the first thing you have to do is if whatever you did hurt another human being, you have to first go to that human being and repent to that person. Make an apology, try and fix whatever damage you did. And so that month before is a reminder. Every day you wake up to this tremendous blast, um, or if you hear it in synagogue, you hear it in synagogue, and then you you know, you know start your day with it. Right. And, and I, I have a question just about the, the stage management of that ritual. Um, who, who, what's it look like? Does just, just one person blows every morning, or, or do, do multiple people get a shot? Or I, I'm just you know curious about... So during the month before, there's no real formal ritual that goes with it. So anyone can blow it. Um, and including in this case, for that month, most authorities believe that women can blow it, although they feel they're not obligated in that. In our house, um, it's often my husband or my son, Gavi, who are mourning people. And they think it's kind of funny to get up and blow shofar while people are still in bed. Um, and it's just one long blast, loud and bold, and it definitely wakes you up to whatever you're supposed to be doing at that moment. In the synagogue, it's usually done at the end of services. Just whoever is the shofar blower uh, will do it. The tekiat shofar is the sound it makes, and it can be anyone. It could be one of the clergy, but it could just be one of the lay people also. On Rosh Hashanah, it gets built into the service, and there's a whole series of notes. Um, the tekiah, which is that loud note, shvarim, which is a broken note, uh, usually nine or more notes within one breath, and truah, which is three medium-length notes, and they have okay. different sounds, and you can feel them in your bones. Right. Okay, so that brings up another tech, a very purely technical question from, my, um, from me as a, as a former trumpet player in high school. Uh, can, can, will the shofar, um, can you sound different notes or multiple notes depending on your embouchure, so how, the, the different way you blow yes. Or do you, you just get the same tone every time? So you can move up and down. No, you can move up and down. And so, again... Um, Sean, my husband, is a trumpet player, 
also, and he can play things on the shofar. I mean, obviously, there there are no valves, and so it's within reason. But yes, you can definitely, depending on your embouchure, change the tone of what you're doing. And both of my boys are also brass players, trumpet and tuba. So they are they can blow shofar very well. Uh, my daughter does know I know how to blow shofar. Um, neither one of us we're more vocalists and so we don't blow as well um, but I would say any brass player can easily learn to blow shofar and can then do it very well but those notes are built into different parts of the service there's an entire shofar service where we have verses from the Torah from the five books of Moses and then from the prophets and then from the writings that are read for each section of the shofar service and then you have all of these and traditionally you are supposed to hear 100 blasts of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah and so there are people who will do all of it but often that gets divided up among different shofar blowers in the synagogue. Uh, for me the most intense one is actually during the private Amidah which is a private prayer recited while standing and so because it's private, you might hear someone mumbling the words, but it's mostly quiet. And then suddenly, whoever is blowing shofar during that section, when he or she reaches that point, will blow shofar, blow these notes. And so you have these loud sounds that you can feel reverberate through your bones in this just calm, peaceful moment. And it's really very meaningful. Um, and hearing shofar is actually one of the things that during COVID people really missed and were worried about. We, we being the rabbis and the cantors and the synagogues across Toronto set up shofar blowing spaces. And you could go to a synagogue near you to the website and see where they might be blowing shofar and sign up to go to a certain spot to hear shofar blown. Uh, I was actually in quarantine, having returned from the U.S. for Rosh Hashanah last year, and I blew it for myself in my backyard. My son, praying with by himself, also blew shofar, so I heard, of course, the blast that I blew, and then the blast that he blew, and then I heard a shofar coming from just a few houses over, where someone must have been, you know, doing the same thing. It was just fascinating to hear these sounds coming from different places in the neighborhood um, I, still very meaningful different sort of meaning but yeah. still very meaningful now that it's that uh it's my understanding it that it's the hearing of the shofar that is a mitzvah as well it's not just the blowing of it that the that the uh to fulfill a mitzvah, mitzvah you you need to hear it and right. is, is is there also some history with um men for some, some men feeling they can only truly fulfill that mitzvah if someone who is obligated to blow the shofar uh, blows it, which is by default a man as opposed to a woman. Is that is that accurate or is that out there? That's pretty accurate. So this is one of those time-bound positive mitzvot, time-bound positive commandments that women are exempt from. So the idea of 
women who are involved in family responsibilities are exempt from these time-bound positive mitzvot. Positive meaning those are the thou shalts as opposed to thou shalt not, right? Everyone's obligated in the thou shalt not, whether it's based on a specific time frame or not. You are not allowed to do it. You're not allowed to do it. But the thou shalts are seen in, in a way of they're additional. If you can, you meaning not if you can, well, if I can, it's a good day, I'll do it. But if you can, meaning you're not involved in another mitzvah that prevents you from doing this mitzvah. So for women that was raising family, um, or for some reason, because of your a physical disability or um, a mental disability, you were unable to fulfill one of those mitzvot, you would be exempt from it. So women because shofar was blown at a particular time and was blown in the synagogue um, or in ancient times in the temple, what women were seen as exempt from these mitzvot. And within that, you can take on a mitzvah that you're exempt from, but not everyone sees that as equaling the value. I don't mean value in terms of worth, but I mean value in terms of, of level of obligation, right? So if you're obligated in it from birth, as opposed to I took this on as a personal choice and obligation, they aren't necessarily equal. And so some men, and um, I would say some men, when we talk about some men, we're talking about particularly within the Orthodox movement, will say that since a woman's obligation to hear shofar is not the same, it's a choice to take on that mitzvah, is not the same as men who are born with this requirement. Therefore, the requirement can't be fulfilled by a woman. So if I'm not going to blow shofar, I being anyone, male, female, whoever, um, if I am not going to blow shofar, I still have to hear shofar, so I need someone else to blow it for me. That person should have the same level of obligation as I have. The same thing happens with minion, counting in a minion who can lead prayers. Men were obligated from birth. Women are not because they're exempt for all the reasons we've been talking about. Therefore, can a woman leading a prayer service fulfill the obligation for a man who hears her lead the prayer service. The same thing, can a woman who's blowing shofar fulfill that obligation for a man who simply hears her blow it? And some authorities, even within the Orthodox world, have said women have taken this obligation on because as a group we are in synagogue on the high holidays. And so yes, and others say no, it's not the same thing as being born to this obligation. Um, and so for Rosh Hashanah and during the service on Rosh Hashanah, women should not be the ones to blow shofar, but women can blow shofar for other reasons. So for instance, during Elul, when it just needs to be blown that in that month beforehand, sometime during the day, that would be an acceptable time for a woman to sound shofar for her family. And that, that's where the divide comes. So it's, it's not as clear cut within the Orthodox world as it is with prayer, but it's still primarily men who take on the responsibility to fulfill that mitzvah and blow shofar. Okay. Okay. Um, 
And so have you ever been part of a service where uh, the way around this is, is to do both? Like you have a, a man do it and then right after a woman do it, like a tandem? Or is it always just, no, no, it only happens once and once it's done, we're fine, move on? No, it happens. Like I said, you hear shofar blown a hundred times and I've been mostly in services that are at least on some level egalitarian, perhaps not all fully egalitarian, but that means that both men and women have the opportunity to blow shofar. And if for some reason we're just hearing a man, it's because it just happened to turn out that way and not because women have been excluded. Sometimes it's you know, who volunteers that year. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah. I have not heard it, although there are partnership minyanim where a man will do it and then a woman will do it. Partnership minyanim are orthodox minyanim that's Orthodox prayer services, where the men and women still sit separately, but they've made a decision to take on responsibility together. And so usually they will require minion to be both men and women. So you need 10 men and 10 women in order to go forward. Um, things like being called up for a portion of the Torah reading will go to both men and women. So you get aspects of the more traditional Orthodox world and aspects of the egalitarian world in Judaism, and they've merged them together in a new way. And so if you were to see a man blow shofar and then a woman blow shofar, that's probably where you would see that. And there's likely congregations that are doing that. Right. So again, this this comes back to that whole um, idea that this is not something that women are necessarily, originally, they weren't prohibited from doing, they were rather excused from doing because they were busy doing more important things. And then it also seems to me that this, this also, just in, in practical experience, this opened itself up to a thing, well, no, it's because a man has got to do it or, or a, a man doesn't feel that he's fulfilled the obligation until he hears a man do it, then suddenly we've got that divide and that's where the where the uh, right. separation comes in, right? Right. You know, this is one of those things that I think um, you know, stereotypes sometimes have a kernel of truth, and the the two Jews, three opinions. This is one of those that definitely comes through. Um, and so, anything. Anything in Judaism, you know, we have a tradition of debating law. And so we have the Torah, the five books of Moses, and we have laws that are given there. And then that gets developed into the Mishnah. And there's also Braitot. A Braita is a, some, similar to the Mishnah, only things that weren't accepted into the canon of the Mishnah. But we still use them when we're debating law. So sometimes when discussing a law, someone will say, well, wait a minute, there was this Brita, you know, and you'd think that since it wasn't accepted into the canon that someone would say, okay, we're not going to use that. Nope. There was this Brita on the side here um, and it said something a little different. So how do we look at that? And then you have generations, you know, the Talmud records what looks like a very long conversation, but is actually a generational conversation that's happening over multiple generations. And sometimes opinions change and sometimes opinions adapt and sometimes they don't come to a decision. You get everyone's opinion, but you don't have an absolute decision. And 
Um, it's almost as if the Tama just kind of shrugs and says, Teku, which means we don't really have an answer, but it'll be answered sometime in the Messianic age. We'll, we'll find out the answer. So that's kind of where it gets tossed out to God. Like, we'll leave it up to God. And um, we, we work from a belief that people want to do the right thing. And so Jews want to live Jewishly. So sometimes when an answer can't be figured out, the text will actually say, go out and see what the people are doing. Because they generally want to do the right thing according to Jewish law. So if everyone's doing, or a majority of people are doing it in a certain way, that's probably the right way. And so you get all of these opinions and all of this debate. Um, and that's why you have conservative Jews like me, and you have Orthodox Jews, and you have Reformed Jews and Reconstructionist Jews. And even within each of those labels, of course, we have these tremendously wide, um, diverse populations who believe all sorts of different things. But our foundation's the same, and our holidays are the same. And in the end, we look at each other and we say, um, hopefully, we're all Jews. And we all want to observe Judaism and you know, certainly most of us, the majority of us, respect that among each other. Uh, and one of the other things that um, I, you know, we, uh, um, or I've had questions about, and I suppose, uh, with respect to Judaism, and this happens in, in both in Christianity and um, in Islam as well, is the is gender separation um, sometimes in, in during the services. Uh, uh -huh. where does where does that come from why why are the men sometimes separated from from the women what's the thought behind that so that's a really good question and it's not completely clear when that began in the ancient temple in jerusalem back in second temple times with the exception of one particular ceremony during the year um, which would have been very crowded and was considered a little more sensual in its practice. It was a water, a water pouring ceremony and no one really knows what was particularly sensual about it, but that was the consideration. Um, at that one time, men and women were separate because mm -hmm. there was concern that being in such close quarters and this, with the sensuality of this, this ritual that people may be led to do inappropriate things. Yeah. However, the rest of the time, men and women could enter any of the temple areas together. And that separation somehow got pushed into all of the, the synagogues. But if you look at ancient synagogues that have been discovered by archaeologists, there aren't separations. Ah. You don't find a machitza, the which is the barrier in between. Right. Um, and so we know that if you go back to the early centuries, it's not there. So more likely... It was part of the influence of outside culture onto Jewish culture of wherever the Jews lived. And then they carried that with them as they moved into new areas uh, throughout the world, whether into North Africa, um, other areas in the Middle East, into Europe, and so on. Okay. Right. Well, that's, that's interesting. Now, you, all, uh, you also mentioned something um, earlier when you are talking. You are talking about the... Um just the fact that um, uh, Hebrew is is um, 
I guess reverts to the masculine or defers to the masculine in right. gender. Um, I had, I have heard it said that I think in Genesis, when it's talked about, um, and I, and I don't speak Hebrew, I can't read it. So I'm going to ask you about this. Um, that in Genesis, it says, um, God created man and he created them male and female or male and female. He created them. And that's been talked about as a, just as an example that, that Adam and Eve or, or man was actually created, you know, um, without gender first in his own image. Yes. Is that, is that right? So how does that, how does that work? So I'm going to quickly pull up Genesis one. There we go. So in the first chapter of Genesis known as Brashit in Hebrew, it says, V'yivra Elohim et ha'adam b'tzalmo, b'tzalem Elohim bara oto, zahar u'nekeva bara otam. And God created et ha'adam, which I'm not going to translate for now, b'tzalmo in his image. In the image of God, God created him, the oto, because of that default. So one being, zahar u'nekeva, male and female, God created them. So this is where this Midrash, this tale that explains the text comes from. In the same verse, which is Genesis 1.27, it says that God created et ha'adam, this being known as ha'adam. In God's image, God created him. So it's one being. Oto could be him or it. And then it says male and female. God created them. So we have in one verse both the God created Ha'adam and the explanation of Ha'adam as one being, but also as a them, a male and a female. And so there are those in our, our history, sages who will say, much like in Plato's Symposium, that the first being was created as one. And then when God splits Adam from Chava, from Eve, that that is the splitting of the male from the female. And that's why it says it takes from the, the cella, from the rib or the side, because God split them down the middle. And so we have this story. Um, I like to translate Midrash as our mythology, but with a capital M, right? A religious mythology, not a myth as in something that's false, but a myth as in something that is religiously true. Right. Maybe not factually true. We don't know. Maybe it is, but certainly religiously true, right? Um, the rest is up to science to figure out. Right. So we have this Ha'adam, and Ha'adam is both it and them. Well, that uh, thank you. That's those are some really fascinating points that you've um, you've given some some light to, and and um, what I'm hearing from that is this idea that. Um, men and women have equally important roles in uh in judaism that i think i think i've heard it say that you know the 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 home is just as important as the synagogue and the home absolutely is, is where the, is is the woman's uh, responsibility and the and so and in, in some ways i i think um i've, I've also heard it says that it, actually it's more important than the synagogue so that the the, the woman is excused from doing things at the synagogue because doing the things at the home are the most important. Is that, is that fair to say? I would say that's correct. Yes. The home is 
and specifically your table, is okay. referred to in our text as a mikdash me'at, which means a, it literally translates as an immediate altar, like an altar in this moment, meaning we don't have the temple anymore. We, we don't have a sacrificial system, but we have our tables as which we sit and we share food and we say blessings. Right. Um, we usually translate it as a small sanctuary. So oh, the home okay. becomes that immediate sanctuary that takes the place of the temple in Jerusalem, whereas the synagogue is a secondary place. So that may, means your home is primary to the synagogue, and that home traditionally in the gender roles that we've seen through history has been the realm of the woman. Right. Right. Okay. Excellent. And it's, it's just fascinating to to see and, and it's how that um, the corresponding or the resulting division of, um, I guess, I, um, I hope I'm using this word correctly, mitzvah, um, mm -hmm. has led to this, uh, I guess, confusion or, or blurring over the importance of those two things. That, you know, um, Absolutely. Anyway, so that's, uh, and, and that is where, kind of what I was looking at in this, in this section we've been talking about in that, um, you know the the other thing too. I don't think I mentioned in this in this talk, but the the idea behind the the design of the window was the um, the things I was wondering about are the things that you know I thought were a challenge about each uh, each faith was all those images were placed outside of the dominant symbol uh, within that religion. So this this particular right. these images are outside of the Star of David, and so that's you know um, just reflecting the idea that I had, had some questions about them and wasn't sure you know, what was being said there and am I understanding this correctly and you know, that kind of thing. But uh, this, this conversation has been really helpful for that. So thank you. Thank you. Great. I, I'll add one more thing. And that is, in the end, practice of mitzvot is very much a personal choice, right? Mm -hmm. uh, religion nowadays are always choices we make. We're no longer put into communities where if you didn't go to church, you could be shunned by your community. Or if you right. didn't follow the mitzvot or go to synagogue, you could be shunned by your community. You would be on the outskirts. Yeah. We all have choices we make. And we all interpret in ways we think is correct. We think that our ways are correct. And if we're lucky, we have someone who is more knowledgeable than we to whom we can always go and ask these questions, uh, and whether they're our own religion or someone else's religion, and we've been able to to build up our um, our people that we have as foundations for giving us knowledge and for building on our knowledge. But that that personal that personal piece has probably always been true behind closed doors. Um, certainly, it has for Judaism mm -hmm. and. You can find throughout history, well into the late 1800s, women still wearing tzitzit, the ritual fringes, in communities where rabbis are saying you shouldn't, right. um, and arguments back and forth. Um, I myself chose, as I said, I chose to put on tefillin after teaching this passage to a young man. And then I looked and I said, wait a minute, this mitzvah is for everybody, and I didn't call my rabbi and ask him what he thought. Um, even though I greatly respected him, it just never occurred to me. Right. I looked at the text. I saw this text spoke to me. And I started 
observing this mitzvah. And that's something that I think people feel more empowered to do nowadays than maybe they did a hundred years ago. Rabbi Jen, it has been great to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Rabbi Jennifer Gorman is the Executive Director for Merkaz Canada and the Canadian Foundation for Masorti Judaism. If you'd like to know more about her work, you can check out merkaz.ca or you can find her on Twitter at Rabbi underscore Jen or you can find her on Facebook at Rabbi Jennifer Gorman. This has been an episode of the Knitting Pilgrim Talks. We'd like to thank the Ontario Arts Council for their support of this conversation series and their funding of Stitch Glass, and the Toronto Arts Council and the Canada Council for the Arts for their support of the Knitting Pilgrim Show. If you'd like to hear more conversations like this about interfaith matters, Stitch Glass, and knitting, please check out our episodes at kirkdunn.com or the Knitting Pilgrim YouTube channel. <laughs>